Section 10 of Emily of New Moon by Lucy M. Montgomery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Leanne Fortune. Section 10. Dear Father, and then she poured out her tale of the day, of her rapture and her pain, writing heedlessly and intently until the sunset faded into dim, starlit and twilight. The chickens went unfed. Cousin Jimmy had to go himself for the cows. Saucy Sal got no new milk. Aunt Laura had to wash the dishes. What mattered it? Emily, in the delightful throes of literary composition, was lost to all worldly things. When she had covered the backs of four letter bills, she could see to write no more. But she had emptied out her soul, and it was once more free from evil passions. She even felt curiously indifferent to Miss Brownell. Emily folded up her letterbills and wrote clearly across the packet. Mr. Douglas Starr, on the road to heaven. Then she stepped softly across to an old worn-out sofa in a far corner and knelt down, stowing away her letter and her letterbills snugly on a little shelf formed by a board nailed across it underneath. Emily had discovered this one day when playing in the garret and had noted it as a lovely hiding place for secret documents. Nobody would ever come across them there. She had writing paper enough to last for months. There must be hundreds of those jolly old letter balls. Oh, cried Emily, dancing down the garret stairs. I feel as if I was made out of stardust. Thereafter, few evenings passed on which Emily did not steal up to the garret and write a letter long or short, to her father. The bitterness died out of her grief. Writing to him seemed to bring him so near, and she told him everything, with a certain honesty of confession that was characteristic of her. Her triumphs, her failures, her joys, her sorrows. Everything went down on the letterbills of a government which had not been so economical of paper as it afterwards became. There was fully half a yard of paper in each bill, and Emily wrote a small hand and made the most of every inch. I like New Moon. It's so stately and splendid here, she told her father. And it seems as if we must be very aristocratic when we have a sundial. I can't help feeling proud of it all. I'm afraid I have too much pride and so I ask God every night to take most of it away, but not quite all. It is very easy to get a reputation for pride in Blairwater School. If you walk straight and hold your head up, you are a proud one. Rhoda is proud too, because her father ought to be King of England. I wonder how Queen Victoria would feel if she knew that. It's very wonderful to have a friend who would be a princess if everyone had their rights. I love Rhoda with all my heart. She is so sweet and kind, but I don't like her giggles. And when I told her I could see the school wallpaper small in the air, she said, You lie. It hurt me awfully to have my dearest friend say that to me, and it hurt me worse when I woke up in the night and thought about it. I had to stay awake ever so long, too, because I was tired lying on one side, and I was afraid to turn over because Aunt Elizabeth would think I was fidgeting. I didn't dare tell Rhoda about the wind woman, 
because I suppose that really is a kind of lie, though she seems so real to me. I hear her now, singing up on the roof around the big chimneys. I have no Emily in the glass here. The looking-glasses are all too high up in the rooms I've been in. I've never been in the lookout. It is always locked. It was Mother's room, and Cousin Jimmy says her father locked it up after she ran away with you. And Aunt Elizabeth keeps it locked still, out of respect to his memory. Though Cousin Jimmy says Aunt Elizabeth used to fight with her father something scandalous when he was alive, though no outsider knew of it because of the Murray pride. I feel that way myself. When Rhoda asked me if Aunt Elizabeth burned candles because she was old-fashioned, I answered haughtily, no, it was a Murray tradition. Cousin Jimmy has told me all the traditions of the Murrays. Saucy Sal is very well and bosses the bonds, but still she will not have kittens and I can't understand it. I asked Aunt Elizabeth about it and she said nice little girls didn't talk about such things. But I cannot see why kittens are improper. When Aunt Elizabeth is away, Aunt Laura and I smuggle Sal into the house. But when Aunt Elizabeth comes back, I always feel guilty and wish I hadn't. But the next time I do it again, I think that very strange. I never hear about dear Mike. I wrote Ellen Green and asked about him, and she replied and never mentioned Mike, but told me all about her rheumatism, as if I cared about her rheumatism. Rhoda is going to have a birthday party, and she is going to invite me. I am so excited. You know I never was to a party before. I think about it a great deal and picture it out. Rhoda is not going to invite all the girls, but only a favoured few. I hope Aunt Elizabeth will let me wear my white dress and good hat. Oh, father, I pinned that lovely picture of the lace ball dress up on the wall of Aunt Elizabeth's room, just like I had it at home and Aunt Elizabeth took it down and burned it, and scolded me for making pin marks in the paper. I said, Aunt Elizabeth, you should not have burned that picture. I wanted to have it when I grow up, to have a dress made like it for balls. And Aunt Elizabeth said, Do you expect to attend many balls, if I may ask? And I said, Yes, when I am rich and famous. And Aunt Elizabeth said, Yes, when the moon is made of green cheese. I saw Dr. Burnley yesterday when he came over to buy some eggs from Aunt Elizabeth. I was disappointed because he looks just like other people. I thought a man who didn't believe in God would look queer in some way. He did not swear either, and I was sorry, for I have never heard anyone swear, and I am very anxious to. He has big yellow eyes like Ilsa, and a loud voice, and Rhoda says when he gets mad you can hear him yelling all over Blairwater. There is some mystery about Ilsa's mother which I cannot fathom. Dr. Burnley and Ilsa live alone. Rhoda says, Dr. Burnley says, he will have no devils of women in that house. That speech is wicked, but striking. Old Mrs. Sims goes over and cooks dinner and supper for them, and then vermooses and they get their own breakfast. The doctor sweeps out the house now and then, and Ilsa never does anything but run wild. The doctor never smiles, so Rhoda says. He must be like King Henry the Second. I would like to get acquainted with Ilsa. 
She isn't as sweet as Rhoda, but I like her looks too. But she doesn't come to school much, and Rhoda says I mustn't have any chum but her or she will cry her eyes out. Rhoda loves me as much as I love her. We are both going to pray that we may live together all our lives and die the same day. Aunt Elizabeth always puts up my school dinner for me. She won't give me anything but plain bread and butter, but she cuts good thick slices, and the butter is thick too, and never has the horrid taste Ellen Green's butter used to have. And Aunt Laura slips in a cookie, or an apple turnover when Aunt Elizabeth's back is turned. Aunt Elizabeth says apple turnovers are not healthy for me. Why is it that the nicest things never are healthy, Father? Ellen Green used to say that too. My teacher's name is Miss Brownell. I don't like the cut of her jib. That is a nautical phrase that Cousin Jimmy uses. I know phrase is not spelled right, but there is no dictionary at New Moon, but that is the sound of it. She's too sarcastic, and she likes to make you ridiculous. Then she laughs at you in a disagreeable, snorting way. But I forgave her for slapping me, and I took a bouquet to her to school the next day to make up. She received it very coldly, and let it fade on her desk. In a story, she would have wept on my neck. I don't know whether it is any use for giving people or not. Yes, it is. It makes you feel more comfortable yourself. You never had to wear baby aprons and sunbonnets because you were a boy. So you can't understand how I feel about it. And the aprons are made of such good stuff that they will never wear out, and it will be years before I grow out of them. But I have a white dress for church, with a black silk sash, and a white leghorn hat, with black bows and black kid slippers, and I feel very elegant in them. I wish I could have a bang, but Aunt Elizabeth will not hear to it. Rhoda told me I had beautiful eyes. I wish she hadn't. I have always suspected my eyes were beautiful, but I was not sure. Now that I know they are, I'm afraid I'll always be wondering if people notice it. I have to go to bed at half past eight, and I don't like it, but I sit up in bed and look out of the window till it gets dark, so I get square with Aunt Elizabeth that way, and I listen to the sound the sea makes. I like it now, though it always makes me feel sorrowful, but it's a kind of a nice sorrow. I have to sleep with Aunt Elizabeth, and I don't like that either, because if I move ever so little, she says I fidget, but she admits that I don't kick, and she won't let me put the window up. She doesn't like fresh air or light in the house. The parlour is dark as a tomb. I went in one day and rolled up all the blinds, and Aunt Elizabeth was horrified and called me a little hussy and gave me the Murray look. You would suppose I had committed a crime. I felt so insulted that I came up to the garret and wrote a description of myself being drowned on a letter-ball, and then I felt better. Aunt Elizabeth said I was never to go into the parlour again without permission. But I don't want to. I am afraid of the parlour. All the walls are hung over with pictures of our ancestors, and there is not one good-looking person among them, except Grandfather Murray who looks handsome, but very cross. The spare room is upstairs, and is just as gloomy as the parlour. Aunt Elizabeth only lets distinguished people sleep there. I like the kitchen in daytime, and the garret, and the cookhouse, and the sitting room, and the hall, 
because of the lovely red front door. And I love the dairy, but I don't like the other new moon rooms. Oh, I forgot the cellar cupboard. I love to go down there and look at the beautiful rows of jam and jelly pots. Cousin Jimmy says it is a new moon tradition that the jam pots must never be empty. What a lot of traditions new moon has. It is a very spacious house and the trees are lovely. I have named the three Lombardies at the garden gate the three princesses and I have named the old summer house Emily's Bower and the big apple tree by the old orchard gate the praying tree because it holds up its long boughs exactly as Mr. Dare holds up his arms in church where he prays. Aunt Elizabeth has given me the little right-hand top bureau drawer to keep my things in. Oh, Father dear, I have made a great discovery. I wish I had made it when you were alive, for I think you'd have liked to know. I can write poetry. Perhaps I could have written it long ago if I'd tried. But after that first day in school, I felt I was bound in honour to try, and it is so easy. There is a little curly black-covered book in Aunt Elizabeth's bookcase, called Thompson's Seasons, and I decided I would write a poem on a season, and the first three lines are, Now autumn comes ripe with the peach and pear, the sportsman's horn is heard throughout the land, and the poor partridge fluttering falls dead. Of course, there are no peaches in Pea Island, and I never heard a sportsman's horn here either, but you don't have to stick too close to facts in poetry. I filled a whole letterball with it, and then I ran and read it to Aunt Laura. I thought she would be overjoyed to find she had a niece who could write poetry, but she took it very coolly and said it didn't sound very much like poetry. It's blank verse, I cried. Very blank, said Aunt Elizabeth sarcastically, though I hadn't asked her opinion. But I think I will write rhyming poetry after this, so that there will be no mistake about it. And I intend to be a poetess when I grow up and become famous. I hope also that I will be sylph-like. A poetess should be sylph-like. Cousin Jimmy makes poetry too. He has made over one thousand pieces, but he never writes any down, but carries them in his head. I offered to give him some of my letterbills, for he is very kind to me, but he said he was too old to learn new habits. I haven't heard any of his poetry yet because the spirit hasn't moved him, but I am very anxious to, and I am sorry they don't fatten the pigs till the fall. I like Cousin Jimmy more and more all the time except when he takes his queer spells of looking and talking. Then he frightens me, but they never last long. I've read a good many of the books in the New Moon bookcase. The History of the Reformation in France, very religious and sad. A little fat book describing the months in England and the aforesaid Thompson seasons. I like to read them because they have so many pretty words in them, but I don't like the feel of them. The paper is so rough and thick it makes me creepy. Travels in Spain, very fascinating with lovely smooth shiny paper. A missionary book on the Pacific Islands. Pictures very interesting because of the way the heathen chiefs arranged their hair. After they became Christians they cut it off, which I think was a pity. Mrs. Heeman's Poems. I'm passionately fond of poetry. Also of stories about desert islands. 
Rob Roy, a novel, but I only read a little of it when Aunt Elizabeth said I must stop because I must not read novels. Aunt Laura says to read it on the sly. I don't see why it wouldn't be all right to obey Aunt Laura, but I have a queer feeling about it and I haven't yet. A lovely tiger book, full of pictures and stories of tigers that make me feel so nice and shivery. The Royal Road, also religious, but some fun in it, so very good for Sundays. Reuben and Grace, a story, but not a novel, because Reuben and Grace are brother and sister, and there is no getting married. Little Katie and Jolly Jim, same as above, but not so exciting and tragic. Nature's Mighty Wonders, which is good and improving. Alice in Wonderland, which is perfectly lovely. And the memoirs of Anzanetta B. Peters, who was converted at seven and died at twelve. When anybody asked for a question, she answered with a hymn verse. That is, after she was converted. Before that, she spoke English. Aunt Elizabeth told me I ought to try to be like Anzanetta. I think I might be an Alice under more favourable circumstances, but I am sure I can never be as good as Anzanetta was, and I don't believe I want to be, because she never had any fun. She got sick as soon as she was converted and suffered agonies for years. Besides, I am sure that if I talked hymns to people it would excite ridicule. I tried it once. Aunt Laura asked me the other day if I would like blue stripes better than red in my next winter's stockings, and I answered just as Anzanetta did when asked a similar question, only different, about a sack. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress. And Aunt Laura said was I crazy, and Aunt Elizabeth said I was irreverent, so I know it wouldn't work. Besides, Anzanetta couldn't eat anything for years, having ulcers in her stomach, and I am pretty fond of good eating. Old Mr. Wells on the Dairy Pond Road is dying of cancer. Jenny Strang says his wife has her mourning already. I wrote a biography of Saucy Sell today, and a description of the road in Lochty John's Bush. I will pin them to this letter so you can read them too. Good night, my beloved father. Your most obedient, humble servant, Emily B. Starr. P.S. I think Aunt Laura loves me. I like to be loved, Father dear. End of section 10. Recording by Leanne Fortune.